What if the speed of light was 30 miles an hour? What if Earth had two suns? Which cereal mascot would win in a what fight? What if everyone lived underground? What if, it rained what if money grew what on if trees? What if pigs could fly? I don't know if that would actually happen. It's much easier to store a unicycle than to store a horse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, it feels like it's been a while since we've done a good old Animal Kingdom question, so I'm kind of excited to dive back into just Googling a bunch of cool animals. It has been a while. We used to do a lot of animal questions. I think we started running out of animals. (laughs) Yeah, we did so many that we couldn't think of other animals to do, so... (laughs) It wasn't that we ran out of animals, it was we ran out of ways to break all the animals. But we've thought of another one. <laughs> Our question today is, what if all animals moved at the same speed? And when we say move at the same speed, we say they all have the same top speed. They can go slower than the speed. They're not locked into always going one consistent speed. That would open up a whole another can of issues. That would mean that they would not be able to stop if that was the case. But they can stop. But what we did is also, we each took a different speed to evaluate the animal kingdom at. So we've all picked a different top speed and kind of went into what happens with that. So Ben, you are the slowest speed. So I'm going to let you start us off. Yes. So I went with one single mile per hour. What if all animals went one mile per hour? For a frame of reference, it's surprisingly hard to get one, actually. The only thing I could find was like the speed of an iceberg floating on like ocean currents which does not tell me anything (laughs) the average walking pace is between three and four miles per hour so a third to a fourth as fast as you personally walk is probably about what we're talking here so there's a lot of ways you could do this right you could you could look at like the fastest any part of an animal's body can move is one mile per hour and that gets into all kinds of weird complicated stuff that i didn't want to deal with so i basically just boil it down to sort of the you know the simple way to think about it the fastest you can propel yourself in any direction is one mile per hour. The travel speed. Exactly, yes. It is possible for you to move your body to move faster than that if you're moved by natural forces, like moving water or air or gravity, right? You know, you could tuck yourself into a ball and roll down a hill, but if you are moving yourself with your own feet or whatever locomotive mean you have, that your max speed there is one mile per hour. I did interpret that to mean that things that move slower than that currently do speed up. So shout out to the big winners of this, the sea anemone, the slowest animal on Earth. Not actually stationary, it turns out. They generally do stay in one place, but they can move on their one foot at around one centimeter per hour, or 0.00006 miles per hour, which means they're moving like 16,000 times faster than they did before. I'm sorry, the sea anemone has a foot? (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Yes, just one. One foot. A single foot. (laughs) How does it walk? I'm going to assume, based on the speed and the single foot, it involves wriggling. (laughs) The wriggle foot. How how do they classify it as a foot? I mean, man, I'm just going off what the internet people told me. (laughs) I mean, I would guess a foot is any appendage used to move yourself, right? So is a snake a foot? Yes. Is a fish a foot? Move yourself across ground. <laughs> so yes to snake, no to fish. Anyway, okay. what I very quickly realized is that if everything's maxing out at one mile per hour, most animal interactions actually get very, very boring because everything's only moving at one mile per hour. 
you can't really have normal predators anymore, predator-prey interactions, because predators can't burst forward to catch something. And speaking of bursting, that leads to a very fun thing I realized, which is that there is now a fixed limit to how high anything can jump, uh, because this propulsion includes going upwards. Fastest you can pull yourself up is one mile per hour, which is about half a meter per second. And as soon as you leave the ground, you start slowing down due to gravity at 9.8 meters per second squared. So if you do the math on that, your upward jump time is only about 45 milliseconds, which is just longer than a single frame in a movie. And if you, you know, go through and take that time and your initial one mile per hour velocity, the highest that anything can jump is about one centimeter, which obviously is not great for a lot of things. Improvement for the sea anemone. I was going to say, does that mean that nothing can run? I was like, oh yeah, one mile per hour. (laughs) One mile per hour. (laughs) So, correct. And yeah, just normal, normal, like, hunting tactics don't work. And really the only way to be a land predator now is to be an ambush predator that drops from above. Because suddenly the fastest way to move is to fall. Technically, I tried to figure out if there was some way you could have, like, a carnivorous armadillo that like rolled down hills towards its prey but if that happened prey just wouldn't go towards hills so that wouldn't be that great of an evolutionary move or the cartwheeling spider does that that thing's cool i did look into the cartwheeling spider and that is very cool there are some other animals that do like either make their body into a ring or sphere so it's like you know armadillos the uh the cartwheeling spider pangolins There's some salamander that like cartwheels, but there's not much because it's not a very effective way to move yourself, unsurprisingly. I also don't know how cartwheeling, cartwheeling probably doesn't count, does it? Because that's still kind of leaping, but rolling does. Yeah, I mean, I know the spider is more rolling than cartwheeling. Right. It's more like I'm putting my legs out in a circle so that I don't just smash my face into the sand. Yeah, but like, I'm pretty sure that that, um, the salamander is more of an actual cartwheel where it's sort of springy as it goes. It's probably not kosher. Anyway, like I said, land predators basically have to drop from above, which gets to a very fun situation where if the land predators have to drop from above from like a tree, they're going to have to be small, which means that all the predators are going to get really big. So it's going to be a very tiny tree-bound predators that drop onto the top of large burly prey and try to, uh, I guess, get them that way. I don't know. It's not going to work great. Poke them to death. Yeah, the ecosystem is kind of all messed up. But moving past ground-based stuff, because like I said, it's all very slow, I want to talk about flight. Because flight became a very tricky proposition in this situation. Birds almost certainly cannot take off from the ground, because they basically always either do a some sort of jump or run to build up the initial speed when they take flight. Gliding is probably okay. Now, note, I did think about like flying squirrels, that does not work. They definitely leave. That will never, ever work in this situation. They're just going to sort of sadly droop off the tree and yeah, no. But I had to sort of look up how much birds can actually fly without flapping their wings. I also realized that flapping their wings in the parameters of the question is kind of a hazy area because this is all Calvin ball anyway. But I decided in the spirit of the question, if birds can just flap their wings, everything is going to be a bird. <laughs> so we're going to stick it to more of a gliding situation. Uh, And it turns out that large birds very heavily rely on gliding and what they call soaring. The problem they have is that when a bird gets too big, 
flapping their wings actually just takes a huge amount of energy and it's super, super inefficient. So there are large birds that spend, I think albatrosses spend about only 12% of their flight time flapping their wings. There's also a condor that spends about 99% of its time gliding or soaring because its wingspan is so massive that it just can't. (laughs) (laughs) Soaring, by the way, it's similar to gliding, but instead of just sort of always moving, you know, gliding is sort of your following with style, moving downwards the whole time. Soaring is catching a, a rising, you know, hot air current and elevating as it happens. So there's also, I think, is swifts. They are, you know, small birds that eat bugs and they will stay airborne uh, for days at a time. They actually eat bugs. So they sort of like fly around through clouds of bugs to eat and apparently can sleep while flying. Scientists aren't sure exactly how that one works, but they theorize they might shut off half their brain at a time to sleep. I think there's a number of animals that can do that. It's weird as heck. Yeah, it really is. And so technically birds might be able to still quote unquote fly if they can get enough speed by like dropping off a cliff or a tree. But I feel like that's technically possible, practically not going to happen all that often. They have to get up into the tree in the first place. They could climb it. You know, they got little claws. Yeah. You know, it could it could work. It's not great, but it's possible. <laughs> My final question then was, obviously, many animals and birds specifically migrate. Is this even feasible at this one mile per hour speed limit? So looking at the Canada goose, which is kind of the most, if you're looking at a goose, it's probably Canada goose in the US or Canada, I would assume. Normally in their actual migration, they fly around 40 miles per hour and that can spike up to about 70 if they get like a strong tailwind. And going at that, they can go roughly 1500 miles in a day. Uh, which is about the distance from Winnipeg, Canada, Austin, Texas. So I Google mapped the walking route from Winnipeg, Canada to Austin, Texas. It is roughly, yes, 1450 miles. And Google Maps says it'll take while walking 473 hours or just under 20 days, which isn't including time to, you know, sleep. Honestly, that's already better than I expected. Not going to lie. Unfortunately, doing the math out, it does work out to about three miles per hour, which is clearly breaking our speed limit. So it's more like 60 days, which I guess technically, if they're effectively just nomadic now, the geese could still do, right? They leave in, I don't know, September, get there before it's too cold, head back up in March. It works. I was really hoping, by the way, that I could get this fun mental image of them using the like Mississippi River as basically a highway. Uh, but it turns out the average speed of the Mississippi River is about 1.2 miles per hour faster it's 20 percent faster it is 20 percent faster which honestly is kind of depressing <laughs> but technically they could use mississippi river and cut off a few days that way point being these could actually still migrate which i was actually not expecting to be the case so overall if animals go one mile per hour it turns out that's not very exciting because everything is very slow big surprise who'd have thunk who'd have thunk but there might still be birds. And if that's the case, everything might be birds because it's just a way better way to move around than walking around at one mile per hour. So, hey, Marcus, what did you do? So I started with my speed of 10 miles an hour. So this is like the more normalish speed. This is like a decent jog, 10 miles an hour. A lot of the animal kingdom actually does already operate around this speed. Like flying insects are also kind of around like 10 miles an hour. Like flies are usually like five to 10. Bees are like 15 to 20, somewhere in that range. So this is like a normal operating speed for the animal kingdom. And actually kind of started in the same place you did, Ben, with looking at kind of predation, because, you know, lots of predators do rely on speed to take down their slower prey, like, you know, cheetahs. 
And that doesn't really work so well if your prey is exactly as fast as you are. But there are actually quite a few ways predators can still function that still just work just fine. You had mentioned ambush hunting. And yeah, if you can't outrun them, just wait for them to come to you. As far as ambush hunting goes, there's some pretty cool and some pretty fucked up ambush predators out there. Trapdoor spiders, who literally spring out of trapdoors that they build, are kind of like in both camps where, ooh, that's cool, but also, man, I don't like that idea. And then kind of in just the pretty effed up camp, the giant water bug. I don't know if you guys have seen these ones before. It's basically a four and a half inch giant beetle that ambushes fish by lying in wait like at the bottom of the water or off of like a you know an underwater plant and then just like latching on and like hugging fish i never like it when a bug hunts something that's not a bug yeah yeah it's like regular fish four and a half inches really doesn't sound like a lot but it's really big for a bug it's big for a bug anything bigger than like an inch is big for a bug but yeah so that's ambush hunting there's also pack hunting if you cannot run your prey i mean you can just hunt in coordinated groups obvious example here is wolves although i actually wasn't sure if they were faster than the deer and the elk that they hunt they are slightly faster the difference is like four or five miles an hour in top speed between like 35 and 40 but of course wolves they use their pack tactics to kind of like encircle and enclose and you know gain ground through strategy more than actual speed pretty self-explanatory another animal i did not realize is a pack hunter apparently crocodiles so enjoy that wait seriously yeah, crocodiles, not always. They they often are they're more often hunting solo, but they are sometimes pack hunters. I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I wrote it in my notes. The uh the wolf pack hunting image with uh Ben's one mile an hour is a really funny image. It is. It really is. <laughs> oh man, there's like a hill coming up. Let's strategize, guys. <laughs> I like the idea that because everything's moving that slowly, the animal that's the prey is going to realize it's dead about a couple minutes before it actually like gets caught, <laughs> which really sucks. Yeah, there's another version of that too, which is endurance hunting. Because, yeah, if you can't outspeed them, there's also just the ability to run for 10 miles an hour for much longer than your prey. Wild dogs in Africa do this, but we've talked about it before. The most successful example of an endurance hunter is actually humans. If you ever wondered how humans actually survived before having all their cool technology, like in the caveman eras where they're like, well, we suck at everything. We have bad claws. We have weak, brittle bodies and, you know, no fangs for anything. The answer is we are probably the most terrifying because we just chased animals for longer until they literally so exhausted they couldn't go on. We would just chase like a deer for a day and a half until it literally collapsed from exhaustion. And our average marathon running speed was slightly higher than the deer's average speed of sprint, weight, sprint, weight, kind of tortoise in the hare type deal. Except the tortoise murders the hare at the end of the race, I guess. And then the, my last example here, what they refer to as aggressive mimicry, which is almost like ambush hunting, but you use bait. Like, think the anglerfish. You got a shiny light that attracts fish with the promise of a shiny food, I guess? <laughs> I'm not sure what the fish thinks the bulb is. But of course, as always, there are worse and creepier examples in the animal kingdom. The margay, for example, which looks like a small cheetah, quite adorable, like kind of really Bengal tiger type vibes, is able to replicate the cries of a distressed baby pytamarin monkey. So basically it makes the noise of a crying baby monkey. And when the parent monkeys go to check on said baby are promptly ambushed and murdered. So really the animal kingdom is going to be generally fine. You know, I don't like giving the advantage to like these totally messed up predators. 
And I considered, like, briefly inventing some new versions of Predators, like a cheetah with an anglerfish line on its head. But, man, I can't <laughs> do better than just the f up stuff that's already happening. Oh, a cheetah with an anglerfish head is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny, especially when I imagine bobbing around while, you know, sprints across the plains. But instead, I'm going to pivot and revisit an old favorite technicality of mine. Because coral is technically an animal. <laughs> Does it have a foot? <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't have a foot, but I'm ignoring that because it's in a mobile animal, but I'm saying it's mobile now. So before I went down my coral rabbit hole, they tend to be kind of sensitive fellows with all, you know, this constant dying off that they're doing recently. So really, what does a coral need to survive? It needs an ideal water temperature. This is where they're currently getting screwed over, where they have like a range that they like to live in. And if it gets even a few degrees out of whack, they don't do super great and they start dying off. They need clean water, which is just like, you know, don't put it next to a factory. Exposure to the sun, water circulation. This article listed a healthy balance of salt water and then was just like, this is why you don't see coral reefs like at a river mouth. And I'm like, oh, so just salt water is <laughs> <laughs> what you mean by a healthy balance of salt water. And they need food and their food is, they're not plants, they are animals. So they actually feed off of the algae and microorganisms that, you know, like to live and grow in its all its nooks and crannies. They don't actually need anything from the rocks and whatnot that they grow on. So, like, this is actually one of the reasons that, like, the man-made reefs, you know, if you call them that, like, they'll be able to help a coral reef grow by dumping, like, an old truck into the ocean. And it provides, like, the hard surfaces that the coral typically likes to live on, but it doesn't need anything. It can live on metal. Like, it's not getting any nutrients or anything from that rock. It's just a place to anchor. So if they're mobile, they're free to roam, which is actually kind of wild because the main reason they stick to these rocks is to keep themselves near the coastline where you have the water circulation. You know, the water's going to pass over them with waves and all that junk. And so that they stay close to the surface of the water because the water kind of dies out pretty quickly as you go down. It's like not, I wish I had that number, but it's not many feet before like 75, 80% of the sunlight is gonzo. So now if they can move, Nothing is stopping the coral from simply wandering the ocean, like, slightly below the surface. Like, food-wise, it effectively makes its own food, as long as it's in a place where all the algae and microorganisms can happily, you know, photosynthesize. It's fine. It feeds itself. Water circulation. If it's moving at 10 miles an hour, that's plenty of water circulation for it to, you know, keep that going. And exposure to the sun, pretty limited because there's only so much shoreline that isn't, like, deep ocean, you know? Most of the ocean dang deep so there's really nothing stopping the coral reef like they have predators like you know things eat coral reefs and mess with anemones and things like that but it's fairly rare that they do like real damage to a reef so what you'll eventually end up with is just this ocean-wide blanket of coral that will swirl and roam around just below the surface and it'll kind of like follow the warm waters up and down the globe as the seasons change and I can't really decide if that's good or bad as a whole. <laughs> like, on one hand, it's really going to mess with the ecosystem as a whole. Like, this is introducing a big change. And it's going to really deny lots of the lower layers of the ocean, like, you know, directly below it, access to the sunlight they would normally get because coral is not see-through last time I checked. But it's also going to introduce a huge amount of life into 99% of the ocean that is effectively a wet desert. Like, if you imagine the ocean is full of fish and things like this in the coastlines, that's not true. There'll be miles of ocean with, like, a fish in it. It's really completely deserted. 
and the only time you see groups of fish like in the mid-ocean is when there is something near the surface that they cling on to like like almost an oasis and it can be as simple as like you know tangled fishing net floating around and like it's made this small floating patch that some fish use for shelter and now that some fish are using it for shelter it's a place for predators to go and eat and suddenly there's a small little ecosystem based around like this floating stuff but now we're gonna have that kind of everywhere and Maybe there's a limiting factor. I'm not considering like nutrients or something that, you know, the coral won't be able to go crazy, but I haven't, I don't know specifically what it is. And I can definitely see just now there's just coral everywhere floating around and it'll just be different. It will suck for boats. I'll say that. (laughs) It's going to be a really bad day to be a boat, (laughs) but for the animals, hey, maybe, maybe it's a good thing. I'm going to stay optimistic. It's good. So if all animals went to 10 miles an hour, we would save the coral reefs. Chris, what did you do? What was your speed? So my speed was 100 miles per hour. What if all animals moved 100 miles per hour? Or if that was their top speed? I guess the winners would be the same as what you guys said, the anemone and the coral. You said the anemone, right? Ben? I said anemone, yeah. Yeah. It'd be the same for both of those. They just they can move faster now. So it's more extreme. But instead of focusing on like the water and on air like Ben did, I focused on land mostly. I started out with the fastest land animal, which is the cheetah, which can run up to 80 miles per hour. So it would be able to run a little faster. And then I realized that was a dumb place to start. (laughs) Can we take a moment to appreciate that, like, the cheetah is actually the fastest animal? It's not some BS like, oh, yeah, cheetahs are really fast. But like, here's like four random species you've never heard of that are faster. Like cheetah, known as the fastest, is actually the fastest. Good job. Basic education, I guess. (laughs) So next, I I decided not to look at fast animals. I thought that was dumb. And I focused on slow animals. So I looked at like turtles and sloths and that kind of thing. And basically concluded that it would be fun and weird. Um, They move fast now. (laughs) (laughs) But also really not that interesting to like do a deep dive on. But the thing is with these animals, they're smaller animals. So instead of looking at the smaller animals, I wanted to look at the ones that would be scary if they could move super fast, and those would be the big, heavy animals. So I focused on the elephant. The largest elephant species is the African bush elephant. It's actually the the largest and heaviest living land animal. And the largest recorded one has a shoulder height of 13 feet, and it weighs 10.4 tons. Jesus. Wow. Yeah, so it's big. It's a big boy. The thing is, 13 feet, like, most people right now are sitting in an 8 or 9 foot high ceiling. Yeah. Imagine, like, halfway up the next story is the top of the shoulder. It's still got a head above that. Yeah, and it's usually, I think it's usually longer than it is tall, right? Yeah, I think so. So I was just imagining, like, something of this size and weight charging at me at 100 miles per hour. Not a fun image. To add to that, they also have tusks. And the longest recorded tusk of these types of elephants is 11.5 feet long. So they have this giant spear in front of them charging at you. Now, to compare with something else, I looked at an arrow to see how fast arrows go. And um, a recurve bow shoots an arrow up to 150 miles per hour. So the arrow does go faster, but the elephant is also 10.4 tons with the 11 foot spike. So I would choose the arrow personally. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather get shot by this arrow than this elephant, please. Right. So normally African bush elephants, they can run 
they can run up to 25 miles per hour, but they don't usually do it for long periods of time. And there is actually a reason, there's a reason behind this. And that is because elephants are endotherms, which means that they produce their own heat through metabolism, just like all other mammals. That's compared to ectotherms, which rely on external heat and like ambient heat to live. And endotherms, the elephant, produces heat through metabolism. And metabolism is actually affected by like your activity level. So if you're, if you're like doing something active, then your metabolism goes up. So if you're doing something like running 100 miles per hour, your metabolic rate skyrockets. And the reason this is a problem with elephants is because this overheats them. It's actually a thing where like smaller animals are a lot better at expelling their metabolic heat than large animals. This is because of the square cube law. We've talked about the square cube law a few times on the show, but it's basically like if you have a 3D shape and you like size it up, the volume of the shape grows faster than the surface area of the shape. Yeah, it's like why ants are always like, oh, wow, they're like a thousand times stronger than this compared to their body weight. But if you scale up an ant, you wouldn't have an ant that is crushing skyscrapers. You have an ant that collapses under its own weight. Right, yeah. So the body volume is actually the thing that produces the heat, like the inside of your body produces heat. And then the heat escapes through your the surface area of your skin. So... Smaller animals like, for an example, the Etruscan shrew is the smallest mammal in the world. It can get as small as three centimeters long as an adult, and it has a body mass as low as 1.3 grams. And due to its small size, it has a very, very small body surface area compared to the amount of volume it has. Uh, other way around. So it has, yep. <laughs> it has a very small volume compared to its surface area. So it creates a lot less body heat, and the body heat escapes a lot faster. And to make up for this, in order to live, it has a very, very high metabolic rate. So its heart rate is actually super high. It's 25 beats per second, which is actually higher than a hummingbird's heart rate. That's insane. Yeah, I think it... I forget if this is true or not, but I think it is the highest heart rate of any animal. And it, in order to live, it has to eat 1.5 to 2 times its body mass every day. If it goes 4 hours without eating anything, then it starves to death. So if this Etruscan shrew ran 100 miles per hour, its metabolic rate would go up really high. It's already really high, but it would go up higher. And the shrew would basically just die of starvation pretty fast. So that is the Etruscan shrew. But what happens to the elephant? The elephant is obviously a lot bigger. So the elephant has a lot of volume, and compared to the volume, it doesn't have a lot of surface area to escape the heat. And to make up for this, instead of a high metabolic rate, it has a low metabolic rate. And there are some other ways that it releases its heat that it's evolved to do. So it has the reason it has its big ears is because it increases the surface area, and there's a lot of blood vessels in the ears, so when it flaps, it releases heat. It also uses water to cool down and stuff like that. But the main reason that it's able to prevent itself from overheating is the low metabolic rate. Now, if an elephant ran 100 miles per hour, like I said before, the activity level affects metabolism. How much would its metabolic rate actually increase from this running? So I found a study that looked at the relationship between metabolism and the speed of running in humans, not in elephants, but in humans. 
And they said that the traditional method of estimating this was assumed to be linear. And they found that it wasn't quite linear. It can be assumed linear if you're looking at like a very narrow range of speeds. But as you get faster, saying that it's linear is actually underestimating the amount that the metabolic rate increases. Oh. Yeah, so it's it's actually getting a lot more than, like if you double your speed, you're getting more than double your metabolic rate. That's a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> well, not for our elephants. <laughs> Gosh. So how much heat will this actually produce in our elephants? Uh, I found another study that studied activity level and metabolic heat storage in Asian elephants, not the African elephant. But I think the whole point of the study was to compare their temperatures during the day and at night when they're active to see if they can adapt their behavior to like avoid overheating. But they looked at two specific elephants and their core body temperatures during exercise. And they said that exercise was basically just them like walking around the sanctuary or wherever they were for like a certain amount of time. And they said their average walking speed was 2.2 miles per hour. And during this active exercise, they found that in the cooler months, so like around 55 degrees Fahrenheit, they would be producing two times as much heat as they are losing heat through their skin. And then in the warmer months, so like around 90 degrees Fahrenheit, they'd be producing more than five times the amount of heat than they're losing. So obviously from this, their temperature is going up if they're active and doing exercise. And they found that a normal elephant walking in the sun on a hot day for four hours could result in lethal core temperatures in the elephant. So if the elephant reaches a core temperature of 109 degrees Fahrenheit, then they would die. That's just from them walking. So like I said, they can normally run up to 25 miles per hour. They usually only do it for short distances, like 100 to 150 feet. And it's probably to avoid overheating. But in the study, they actually did confirm that it has the same relationship between the speed and metabolism that I found in the study with humans. So it is more than linear, the relationship in elephants. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar. And it turns out that if an elephant runs 100 miles per hour for 30 seconds, it would die. <laughs> oh, no. How hot, does, how hot does the elephant get? Oh, well, it would reach the 109 degrees Fahrenheit. It's the lethal temperature. But if it managed to somehow survive past that and it ran for 100 miles per hour for five minutes, then the water inside its body would reach boiling temperature and it would explode. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Yeah, and this would happen for more than just elephants. It would happen for other mammals as well. Uh, anything that produces its own heat. And the amount of time it would take to explode depends on its size, I guess. So there'd be like a sweet spot for size. So if you're too small, then you just starve to death like the Etruscan shrew. If you're too big, you explode like the elephant. Probably the cheetah would be fine. <laughs> yeah, it's probably the cheetah who already does it. <laughs> but yeah, I don't exactly know what the thresholds are for that size, but things would explode. Oh, man, I've never been so happy to imagine an elephant exploding, but also still a little sad. <laughs> I also, like, can't get the image out of my head when you said lethal core temperature that the elephant is, like, a robot spaceship inside. And there's, like, <laughs> a dude, like, they're walking at, like, three miles an hour. And it's like, what are you doing? You're crazy. The, the core temperature. 
Stop! I just see like the like cartoony steam gauge like with the needle like yeah. breaking up against the right side of it, you know. Slow it down! Slow it down! <laughs> the glass cracks on it. You'll kill us all. That's amazing, absolutely amazing. And with that, I'm gonna move us over to our would you rather question because I don't. We're not topping the exploding elephant. You can't. It's impossible. Chris. Yes. You explode the elephant. You get the first question here. That's my reward. It's your reward. Would you rather be an experimental patient for cryogenics or for human cloning? Hmm. So, what's the fail state for the cloning? It's really just that you don't get a clone, right? Should we say that both the fail state's death on both? Or maybe not. I guess just a tissue sample, right? Yeah. Like, technically you could die from them taking a tissue sample. Like, if they do it really badly. <laughs> <laughs> or you get, like, hit by a bus on the way in, right? <laughs> you trip and go down, going down the stairs. Yeah, right. Like, But the cryogenics, you're going to die. Right, yeah. Well, they're already on human trials. I mean... If it's just going to be like one's going to murder me, one's going to be whatever. If you just assume I'm going to die in cryogenics, it doesn't really make it much of a would you rather. Well, it's like, what's the chance of it failing versus if it succeeds and I'm in the future and that's cool. Right. That's what I was going to say is that the cryogenics is basically to you time travel, which is, I guess, also bad. Let's yeah, let's do no chance of death. We can bring it back into the equation later. But let's say you're a test patient, but they're successful. You're the first cryogenically frozen or the first cloned person. Do I want another me? Yeah, what are my clones? Like, does he have all my memories? And does he think he is me? I think we go like modern day cloning. Like there's a new you that's now a baby. It just has all your genetics the same. So none, none of my memories. None of your memories. It's just a new thing that's you. But yeah, it does not have your memories. And it's a baby version of me. Yeah. Or is that less interesting as a hypothetical? Should we go with the it's exactly you? I think it's exactly you is more interesting because it may, it is if if it's not exactly me then I think it's an easy choice then I would choose the cloning. All right, let's go. It's exactly you. There's a new exact you. It knows it's a clone. Let's avoid that plot hole. Okay, it knows it's a clone, but it has all my personality, all my memories, and there's no mistaking that I'm not the clone. Yeah, you got a tattoo or something. We'll we'll go with that. <laughs> Foolproof plan. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a tram stamp that just says clone that he can't remove. <laughs> i'm the clone <laughs> see the thing with the cryogenics is it'd be cool to see the future but like all my friends would be gone all my family would be gone i wouldn't have any connections well i guess like how far ahead in the future are we talking here probably not far enough ahead for it to be cool yeah either it's not cool enough or or it's cool for like a day and then everyone's dead that you know yeah these are both like negative it's got to be at least like what five ten years for the cryogen like minimum yeah. Should, let's pick a time. Let's say five years. Yeah, five years is a good amount of time. Because I think both of these, for me, are negatives. I think both are not good. I think I agree with that, actually. Actually, it depends on what your relationship with your clone is. If they're friendly, which I I think my clone would be friendly to me, then, like, you could... Do people know that you have a clone? Well, that's what I think is going to be the negative, is yes, I think... Absolutely. If you went to a lab and they cloned you, it's going to be in the news. So it's not a secret. Hmm. So you can't fool people. <laughs> but you are probably a celebrity now. That's true. Or your clone is the celebrity? Yeah, who would be more famous? No, people remember Dolly the Sheep, not Dolly 2.0. I don't know. I think the clone would be more famous than me. 
you'd probably have to go together with your clone because they want the visual of both of you side by side. That's true. It would be both of you. You're right. I'm kind of digging what Chris said, though, about like, if the clone was my personality, my clone would be pretty damn chill. I think I'm a good person, which I <laughs> think most people think. I think we'd both be able to deal. We'd probably start a podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> people can't tell voices apart anyway on podcasts. Yeah, it's not like we would like try to murder each other or anything. God, it would just be so weird. I don't know. It'd be weird at first, but you get used to it. I feel like both are incredibly weird, and I don't know which is less weird. Because, like, obviously the downside with the cryogenics one is that everyone else in your life goes on for five years. But in the cloning one, everyone else in your life suddenly has another you. See, I think the cryogenics, if it's only five years, I don't think that's much of a difference. Like, it's basically the same as normal life. It's just you lost five years, or you're five years behind everyone. That's a lot. Though. That's a lot. That's not that much. Like, as an adult, it's not that much. If it, if it happened when you were a kid, then all your friends would be older than you. It'd be weird. Well, someone in a serious relationship, five years, it's got to be weird to come back to. That doesn't work great there. I mean, the person isn't going to be drastically different, though. They'll have had five years of life without me, though. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's. I think the difference is way smaller than if you have a clone. I think the opposite. Yeah. I think being gone with five for five years would mess my life more than, or like would mess with my relationships more than having a clone would. We're basically talking about Endgame. Because <laughs> they're gone for five years, right? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't seen it. All right. Marcus has seen no movies. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you haven't seen Endgame. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I just think, I think my clone would be chilled. The slight thing I'm worried about is, you know, they cloned you. Are they going to stop at one? Right, I thought about that too. Probably not. You'll be the first one, and then, I mean, you'll be famous, and then they'll start doing it more, and you'll be less of a novelty. Oh no, what Marcus means is there's going to be more than just the one clone of you, most likely. Oh, I don't think they're going to keep on cloning you. I think they're going to clone other people. Man, the, the five-year cryogenesis, for me, is just too much. Like, there's just such downside. I honestly don't think it's that much of a downside, but whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, for me personally, I think it... If I were to stop my life for five years and try to come back to it, I think it would be tough. So I'm going to go with the clone. My clone's going to be chill. All my clones are going to be chill. I'm in it to live it, baby. Ben? Oh, I I am also going clone. I'm kind of in the same place as Marcus where I just feel like, yes, five years isn't a long amount of time like relative, relative to your life, but thinking about how much my life has changed in five years and the lives like, well, I know that is, that feels like a lot. <laughs> I can deal with the clone thing. So I don't think that the uh, five years is that big of a downside. But I also think that the clone isn't a downside. I actually think I would like having a clone. It's not like they have to live with you. Like they can be their own person. It's just every once in a while you see your clone. It's just like you're a really, really good friend because you have the same personality. So I think that while cryogenics is not bad, clone is better. I'm going clone. We've all decided, but one last thing that I just thought about, how much will it ruin you emotionally if, like, you know, five years down the line when when the other Chris wakes up, <laughs> even though he picked clone, like, what if your clone's just doing way better than you are in life? <laughs> like, you start in the same spot, and, like, five years later, your clone's just, like, living it up, and you're, like, doing other stuff, and you're like, oh man, I'm really jealous of my clone. And it's worse because you know they were, like, in the exact same spot you were with all the same memories and skills. The only thing that's different is that they made different choices. That is pretty much inevitable. One of the clones is going to be jealous. Yeah, it's just going to be a psychological blow. That said, 
So is skipping five years of my life. So still going with the clone. <laughs> and there you have it. We're going to get ourselves some clones. So listeners, it's important for you guys to also start getting yourself some clones so that we increase our viewership that way. And make sure that your clones go get jobs so that they can go get dollars so that they can go give it to us through our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals. You can go there and support the show directly with your hard-earned clone dollars. If you are a clone, you are more than welcome. If you are not a clone, go get some, but also come yourself. There's just one tier. It's just $1 a month. And with that, you get access to all our bonus content that we produce each month for our Patreons exclusively. So super cool. You want to hear more of us? That's where we are. That's where our clones live. We'll get $2 the clone. And keep cloning. Have your clone make a clone. And then your clone makes two clones. And then your clone makes three clones. And now you have a pyramid scheme, but it's all you. So it's all bonus and nobody gets hurt. Isn't that also what happened in that Fantasia thing with Mickey Mouse and the, the broomsticks in the water? I don't know. I haven't seen it. <laughs> of course not. That's a, that's a movie. Pretty sure he, he like chopped them in half with an axe. Yeah, that one got kind of dark a little bit, actually. Yeah, Fantasia's great. Just make sure that happens at the bottom of your clone pyramid, like on the, you know, the eighth generation clones. Exactly. That way your top seven tiers can still go to that Patreon. Or they can leave us reviews. Leaving reviews is a great way to help the show. It doesn't cost a dime. doesn't require clones. helps more people find the show if there are good reviews. And if you want to be involved directly, send us a question. Absurdhypotheticals at Gmail is probably the best way to reach us. And uh, you have a cool idea for hypothetical, let us know. Or if you just think we screwed something up, we are happy to take con- uh, constructive criticism. Especially if it's like aimed at Chris or Ben. <laughs> we know the elephant would die first and not explode. Yeah, like, or like, you know, you you are a scientist with, with a degree in biology. And you're like, Chris, that's not how that works. Here you go. Anyway, feel free to join us next week where we try not to mess up the following question. What if it rained nonstop for a year? Mm-hmm.